Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to our New Testament overview. We are looking today out of order at the Gospel of John. There is a method to the madness here. We're not going to go in the exact order that they're in our New Testaments, but uh, we wanted to keep Luke with Acts. If you're singing the New Testament song, yes, we have it wrong. (laughs) It's not Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But don't worry, we won't sing the New Testament song for you. No, we have been known to do that before. But the Gospel of John comes last of all as our New Testaments read for a reason. There's actually a reason for that. And it's because John was written a little bit after the other three Gospels, and he just writes completely differently than the other guys as well. And it's likely because John, this is the Apostle John that we're talking about, John the son of Zebedee, John likely was able to read the other three Gospels, um, or likely able to put his hands on it and, and read or know at least what some of the other guys wrote. And so John is going to record some different things that Jesus did and Jesus said and Jesus taught that overlap some with the other three Gospels, the synoptics as we call them, but also put a different light on Jesus and and what his purpose was. Yeah. If you ever hear someone talk about the synoptic Gospels, uh, that synoptic just means like seeing together, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, because they generally record most of the same events uh, of Jesus. Of course, each one has their own unique spin that we're talking about as we uh, go through these podcasts. But John really focuses in a lot more on Jesus' time in Jerusalem when he goes up to Jerusalem for the feast days. And there's a couple of those things in the other Gospels, but John really gives us some other insight into other encounters that Jesus has. And so it's almost as a supplement to the other Gospels. But of course, John's doing his own thing with uh, his themes and the way that he is crafting this account of Jesus. And yeah. it's really cool. So, so John will have several different unique things that he does. One of the big things about John is the number seven. Uh-huh. He does a lot of things in sevens. We won't talk about all of them. But one of the big things is there are seven signs in the Gospel of John that he kind of structures the first half of his gospel around these seven miracles that Jesus does that show that he is the Son of God. It is helpful to read the the mission statement of John. He does close the gospel with saying, why I wrote this book. (laughs) Um, In John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Mm -hmm. And that just is so different from the other three writers. I mean, John, he kind of puts himself into the account at different moments to say, hey, this is why this was recorded. Or sometimes he'll even say, and we didn't understand this until after he had resurrected. And so John certainly inserts himself more as almost a narrator as the events are playing out here, which is very unique to his gospel, which is cool. The other thing that John does in sevens are seven I ams. Um, and some of these you might be familiar with. You might have heard, you know, I am the good shepherd that Jesus said in John 10, but there are six others. I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And so there are seven of those that John has in his gospel, which I think is really cool as it kind of 
mirrors and matches up well with what the seven signs are doing as well. And so it's just a really kind of pleasing way to read when you know that there's a structure to it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of interesting because especially with the signs, as we'll talk about in a minute, he, he numbers the first two for you, but then he doesn't number the rest of them. So you're kind of start, right. you yeah. kind of start you counting like, oh, how many of these are there? Yeah. Um, there's actually seven other I am statements in the gospel where he just <laughs> says the words I am um, that will touch on those as we go through. But um there are several other interesting themes in John, uh, that just images that he uses or things that he likes to highlight. One is light and dark. Yep. Uh, it's really cool to see uh, how he uses light and dark throughout, you know, good and evil, um, holiness and unholiness, um, which kind of ties into another theme of, of water and washing that comes up a good bit in John's gospel. Uh, there's several plays off of that idea of being cleansed, um, holy or unholy. One of the other things we see is a lot of what John is recording are like, more like personal encounters that yeah. Jesus had, one-on-one conversations yes. or small groups, whereas often in the other Gospels, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes, like the Sermon on the Mount or his parables. But in John, there's a lot more like Jesus and the woman at the well or Jesus and Nicodemus, and it's a, a very personal account of these conversations that Jesus had with, with individuals. Yeah, and that's going to be, I think, one of the more important things to see as you go through the Gospel of John, because you need to insert yourself in these people's shoes as you read through it. As you go through the other Gospels, like Stephen said, and try to imagine being a part of the multitude, also try to imagine yourself face-to-face with Jesus and talking to him about your problems and talking to him about the sin that's in your life. And thinking about how he would respond to that. It's really cool how John does that. Yes. And uh, one of the other things he'll point out it is kind of a, a structural thing is that about his hour, like my hour has not yet come. Right. And then he finally says, my hour is here. Um, and that's an interesting thing in John. And again, like we mentioned before, um, he has a lot of emphasis on the feast days uh, that Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for a particular feast. And sometimes the events that Jesus is associated with uh, tie in with the events of that particular feast. So it's helpful to have some knowledge of mm-hmm. the book of Leviticus and the different feast days and what those were about. Um, so you can understand some of what John is doing there with the uh, Jesus attending these different feasts. And that moves us well into the outline of the Gospel of John. And his, unlike the Gospel of Mark's, is, I think, a little bit easier to see some structure in and some, some of the outline. And his starts off in a very unique way in the prologue by introducing who Jesus is by not saying his name. And the other gospel accounts, just real quick how we remember they start, Matthew starts with genealogy. The Jews are reading that and realize that Jesus is tied all the way back to David and Abraham. And then it immediately gets into his birth and his conception and how all that played out. Uh, Mark's gospel, as we read last week, it just kind of jumps right into who John the Baptist is. It doesn't record any of John the Baptist's birth or Jesus' birth. It just kind of jumps right in. And Luke's gospel, similarly, just kind of jumps into the details of John the Baptist and Jesus' birth. But I want you to follow along with us and hear how John starts his gospel. Let's go ahead and read John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
So it starts off uh, with three words that immediately make us think of a different book of the Bible. In the beginning, mm-hmm. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis it makes you think. Of, yeah, that's exactly right. And the first thing that, that's going to happen is God's going to say, "Let there be light." But in a similar way, John is helping us think about the light that he's introducing, that is Jesus Christ, as he's described as being the Word that's been there from the very beginning, and that Jesus really he is God's Word to us, and we need to listen to him. John, from the get-go, is establishing, really, the deity of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's a fundamental thing for us to understand as we go into this gospel. Yes, and it's really cool to see John is a little more veiled in his Old Testament references, whereas Matthew is just in your face, like, this happened to fulfill what was written by the prophet, and he quotes it. John there's Old Testament references all over the place. You go read Genesis, and then you start to read John 1, you're like, oh, man, like, Jesus is the light. He is the word of God. God said, let there be light, you know, and there's all sorts of really cool connections to see there, but John is much more subtle about it. Um, his gospel is in some ways a little more poetic in that he uses some more cryptic languages uh, or more cryptic language and, and phrases things in a very simple way but that gets you to really think deeply about who Jesus is. Um, So the prologue is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Um, There will also be an epilogue to John, chapter 21, after he makes his mission statement at the end of chapter 20. Um, But the the first chunk of John's gospel, the first big picture, is chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of chapter 12. And this is where we have the seven signs of Jesus but we also have this this section of John is kind of divided into seven movements, um, where chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 2, verse 12, records for us what is essentially the first week of Jesus' ministry. Um, you've got like day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, and then three days later, kind of day 7, you've got the wedding at Cana in chapter 2 and the first sign that Jesus does. And so in this first week, there's a lot of like, trying to figure out yes. who Jesus is. Yes. Stephen, I'd actually never noticed this until Stephen pointed it out in an individual class I was in with him. And um, it really is fascinating to see people, because you got some people like Andrew and, and Simon Peter, who John the Baptist points them to Jesus, and they're just like, yeah, this is him, this is the Christ. And they just jump right in and start following him um, based off of the recommendation of John the Baptist. But then you meet another guy um, named Nathaniel, who is very skeptical of who Jesus is, and really is the first skeptic that we read about. And uh, when his friend Philip had told him that we found the Messiah, it's Jesus Christ from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathaniel replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip will reply and say, come and see, which is exactly um, what had been said earlier in the chapter. And so... It, really helps us understand that there are really going to be two responses to Jesus. There are going to be people who are ready for him and who have been prepared for this and are like, okay, yeah, I can I can get behind this. And then there's going to be some people that are skeptical and that need some coaxing and need some time with Jesus to finally understand who he is. And from the get-go, Jesus got disciples from both ends, which is really cool to see. Yeah, and it's important to, to know that another theme in John is the theme of belief and unbelief. 
And one of the things he's going to be doing is giving us portraits of different disciples and their level of belief or unbelief. You know, Nathaniel takes some convincing here. Uh, Thomas, at the end of the gospel, will take some convincing um, until he sees, you know, Jesus in, in the flesh and p- touches, you know, the wounds. And there's the guys at Nicodemus who you see at different points in their faith. And it's really cool to, to think about what it means to trust in Jesus, what it means to believe in him, and seeing how John takes us through different stories, real accounts of people who were there with Jesus and came to believe in him. Now, there's obviously those who reject him as well. Hard-heartedness, unbelief is another theme. But uh, that's just really cool to see, even from this first week of Jesus' ministry. Yeah. That leads us into the second sign, but it starts where it points out to us that kind of the, the first Passover um, this is in John 2, verse 13, that the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And we read about him cleansing the temple. And if you remember from our episodes in Matthew and Mark, you remember talking about like a, clean, a cleansing of the temple there. But it happened at the end of the Gospels, didn't it, in, in Matthew and Mark's accounts. But here in John's account, apparently there was a cleansing of the temple that happens here near the first Passover. And it might be the same one they're referencing. I don't really know. Um, and it really doesn't matter, but John is pointing out that Jesus, from the very beginning, is doing a kingly task. This is something we saw Hezekiah and Josiah doing in the Old Testament, and now this is something Jesus is doing in his city and his temple as well. And no sooner than he cleanses the temple, he encounters someone that would have known that temple quite well, Mm. and that was Nicodemus, who was a leader amongst the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus at night. And that again, Stephen pointed out the light and darkness theme throughout the Gospel of John. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, I think, to kind of shield himself and to shield the backlash that would come. You know, here he is, this great teacher of the Jews, and yet he's coming to Jesus. An irony Jesus will point out in this dialogue with him. And he will simply say to Jesus, there's no way that you can't be from God with all the signs that you're doing. And Jesus will say something a bit cryptic at first. Um, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is floored by this, but Jesus will elaborate and say, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus, I think, is making a very clear reference to to baptism, um, something that Jesus and his disciples will be doing later in chapter 3. But Nicodemus, a ruler of the Pharisees, uh, comes to Jesus, and the dialogue eventually stops and we don't see him again until chapter 7, in which he still hasn't confessed the name of Jesus, even when he's given an opportunity. But by the end of the gospel, John is going to have a hand along with Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea. Nicodemus. Uh, sorry, what did I say? John is going to have a hand with Man, sorry. Um, what I meant to say is Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus is going to have a hand with him in bearing Jesus Christ. Right, which is a public way of saying, I'm with Jesus. And so you see this full transformation of Nicodemus. Again, that's something that's not found in the other Gospels. Yeah, that's right. And, and one of the interesting things that we'll see here is with Nicodemus, misunderstanding, you must be born again. There's just going to be something that happens over and over in John's Gospel where Jesus says something figurative and spiritual and whoever he's talking to takes it literally and physically. (laughs) And um, he has to kind of explain, no, no, I'm not talking about physical birth here. Uh, I'm not talking about physical bread. Uh, I am the true bread that came Mm -hmm. down from heaven. So 
um, watch for that as you go through John. There's a, a theme almost of misunderstanding Jesus initially and coming to see on a deeper level what Jesus is really talking about. So um, chapter 2, verse 13, and really going all the way through chapter 4, it looks like kind of an out-and-back trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. So he goes down uh, to Jerusalem. He meets Nicodemus. And um, it's in the context of Nicodemus that there's this most famous Bible verse uh, where, you know, apparently in that conversation, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And again, the theme of belief coming up here in John. Um, But after he goes to Jerusalem, he goes across the Jordan to where John the baptizer was baptizing. And there's a really interesting conversation there with John where basically he ends up saying, he must increase, I must decrease. Um, John knows that his time is coming to an end and he hands things over to Jesus. But then on his way back up to Galilee, he stops in Samaria. Yeah. And, and it says he had to pass through Samaria, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Because typically the Jews, they did not pass through Samaria. They went out of their way to go around it anytime they were traveling through. Because uh, John will point out to us that the Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other in verse 9. And that's something that we talked a little bit about in our Between the Testaments podcast. Yes. And so the fact that this woman is a Samaritan is not uh, an incidental detail. It's really important to this. And so Jesus has this fascinating conversation with her. First of all, she's floored that he's even talking with her. But they end up talking about um, he knows exactly who she is, that she's had five husbands, and the one she now has is not hers. But then about worship and about how the Samaritans worship differently from the Jews, but there's an hour coming when it's going to be different. Um, People are going to worship God in spirit and in truth, maybe in the spiritual and true way. And uh, this is where Jesus has one of his first I am statements that's not one of the uh, I am the bread, I am the way, truth, life. Mm -hmm. In uh, John 4, verse 28, uh, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the ESV. But he literally says, after she says... She asks him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. Uh, And so I think that's really cool to see. And we'll see several others of those as we read through the Gospel of John. And the disciples get back to Jesus. Um, They're floored that he was even talking to the Samaritan woman. And Jesus will have to have a talk with them about being willing to go to these places and that the fields are white for harvest and several good lessons to learn. And the Samaritans, many of them end up believing in him um, because of this woman who pointed them to Jesus, but ultimately because of the words of Jesus, which is exactly what they say. But this chapter ends with the second miracle that John records for us. Yep, he comes back to Cana in Galilee where he did the first miracle, turning water to wine. Um, And the second miracle is where he heals this official son. Um, it's kind of interesting that it's at the seventh hour that the fever leaves him. Again, more sevens in John. It's just interesting. But that leads us into the second, or I guess the third big movement in the book, which is really just chapter five, in which Jesus comes to Jerusalem for an unknown feast, just as there was a feast of the Jews. But this one, it centers around the Sabbath day and on Jesus working on the Sabbath day, but how the Father is working on the Sabbath. So there's this man who's healed, who is paralyzed. He wasn't able to get into the pool to be healed. Um, And Jesus finds him. I think it's so cool to see Jesus finding these outcasts. He finds the woman at the well. He finds 
uh, you know, this man who's paralyzed at the pool, who apparently has no other friends who are going to pay attention to him, but Jesus pays attention to him. Um, and he heals him. He doesn't have to get in the pool. You know, pick up your bed and walk. And of course, they're mad about him working or doing this miracle on the Sabbath day. We've seen that in other gospels. But it's interesting that it, it sparks this whole long conversation with the Jews there about who he is and his authority and why they can know that he is the son of God. Jesus points to other witnesses yes. about himself that, hey, listen, if I just come on the scene and I bear witness about myself, don't believe me. But look at John the baptizer. Look at the miracles that I do. The father is bearing witness through the miracles. And look at the scriptures. Uh, these are the ones that bear witness about me. And so one of the things we're also going to see in John is Jesus' authority and him talking about his authority coming from the Father. He doesn't do anything on his own initiative, but he is only acting within the authority of God the Father. So it's really cool, even though he is deity. I mean, John is going to emphasize probably even more than the other Gospels that Jesus is God. That's why he says, I am, in these different instances that yeah. ties in with God's personal name, Yahweh or Jehovah. But even then, he's the son, and he is submitting to the authority of the Father. So it's yeah. really cool to see both of those things. The two other things that John tackles, uh, starting in chapter 6, that coincide with the other Gospels was the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, But uh, where, in which we actually see another one of the um, unclassic I am statements. Whenever Jesus is walking on the water uh, in John 6 and verse 20, he said to them, it is I, uh, do not be afraid. If I'm not mistaken, that's one of those places where Jesus, what he actually says in, in, as it's recorded in Greek is, I am, do not be afraid, yep. which is just so cool. Um, and they're learning more about who Jesus is, and they're learning more about this authority that he has. I mean, being able to multiply the, the fish and the bread and being able to walk on the water. And this will give way into Jesus being able to teach the people a really hard message, um, a message that's going to result in several of his disciples leaving him um, and not following after Jesus anymore. And at the core of that message, Jesus had said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And so you can imagine hearing that, and especially... And being really grossed out. If you can't think of it in a figurative way or in a metaphorical way, being freaked out at what this guy is saying... Is and Jesus so, a cannibal? Like, what's going on? And so it says, uh, this is in John 6, verse 60, that many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And several of these people, in verse 66, will withdraw from him and not follow him anymore. And Jesus will turn to the twelve and say, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Peter will say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And th this is where I think that John <clears throat> glimpses in on the one thing that the apostles did have. <laughs> There's a lot of faults of the apostles, but the one strength that they had is that they knew who Jesus was. They didn't always know what that meant, mm -hmm. but they knew who he was, and they knew he was worth leaving everything behind to follow, even when they didn't fully understand who he was. 
I got to tell you, sometimes I don't fully understand Jesus' purpose or his mission for me and fully understand why I have to give up some of the things I have to give up. But I know who Jesus is. And I know that regardless of my feelings, he is worth everything to leave everything behind for. And so to see that in the apostles here, I think, is a really valuable thing. Yes. So in this whole sermon that Jesus talks about eating his flesh, drinking his bread, it ties in with the feeding of the 5,000 because he's the bread of life. Um, So that's one of the other I am statements that comes up in this section. And that gives way to what I think is the biggest chunk of John, uh, chapter 7, all the way through chapter 10, verse 21, all seems to happen kind of in the same general sequence in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or um, the Feast of Shelters is another name I've heard for it. I, I think I like that one best because um, where they would remember the Exodus and go live in shelters like they did in the wilderness. And there are several interesting connections to the wilderness experience uh, in this section. And so Jesus goes down to Jerusalem and it's really interesting this whole section is filled with misunderstandings about Jesus. Uh, his brothers don't believe in him. And there's this conversation about, is he going to go to the feast at all? Um, people are like, wait, like, who, who is this guy? Where did he get this learning? He's never studied. Can this be the Christ? Is anybody going to do more signs than this? Um, and actually, at one point in chapter 7, they send officers to arrest him. And um, before the last great day of the feast, Jesus is crying out, you know, whoever believes in me, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, This is really cool. Um, And this is going to tie in with the theme of the spirit, which he comes up a lot in the gospel of John as well. But I think it's interesting that at the end of John 7, you have an interesting encounter where there's all this confusion about who Jesus is, but then they didn't arrest him. They went to, they were sent to arrest him. And when they come back, they say, no one ever spoke like this man. And this is one of those times where Nicodemus speaks up and is like, hey, like, are we, shouldn't we like give him a fair hearing? Because they're like, oh, are you also from Galilee? Have you been deceived? You know, uh, it's really interesting to see just their, their prejudice, their unbelief, the hardness of heart there. But this is going to give way to the discussion in chapter eight of Jesus being the light of the world mm-hmm. and how people can come to him and understand who he is and then they're able to see everything else and it's in this context again that he has a famous conversation about you will know the truth and the truth will set you free jesus is the light jesus is the truth and again some hard conversations in this section about you're of your father the devil you're not from abraham and he's talking with jews and this was a big deal yes at the center of this discussion it's the pharisees that jesus is talking to and matthew records some hard things that jesus said at the end of his gospel but i think this is one of the most startling places that we see jesus just being so straightforward with the jews and pointing out their hypocrisy and also that they're trusting in the wrong thing um and one of the ways uh stephen just alluded to it there uh this is in um John 8 and verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. uh, You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said, we were not born of fornication. Uh, We have one father, God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you do the desires of your father. It's just one of the more straightforward places, Stephen, I I think, where Jesus just reasons with them and says, look, you're not going to believe because you can't hear my word. And I, I hear people every now and then and say, well, you know, if... If Jesus is real, it's been 2,000 years, supposedly, since he's been here. Why doesn't Jesus just come back now, do all the same miracles, and he'll get that following going? And it's like, no, it, it recorded it for us. There were people even then that were looking at clear miracles in the face and still denying who Jesus was. And they won't believe in him. And Jesus says, you're not going to believe because you cannot hear my word. And there's going to be a lot of people that come across these Gospels and read them, or maybe some people you talk to about the Gospel, who are hearing it, but they're not hearing it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And Jesus' response to them is, is clear. Um, fine. <laughs> if you don't want to believe, I am not going to force you to. And Jesus will move on. Mm-hmm. And in this same conversation that Jesus has one of the other most straightforward statements about who he is and about his deity— when they talk with them about Abraham, they're like, you know, 50 years old, have you seen Abraham? And in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this is, again, probably the most direct statement in all of the New Testament about the deity of Jesus. And it happens with these unbelieving Jews who are challenging his authority um, and he's making some, saying some hard things to them. And so what's interesting is this kind of gives way to John 9 and 10, which all seem to be still in Jerusalem, about the healing of a man who was born blind. But what's so interesting to me about this uh, sequence is the blind man is the only one who can see in uh, this section. Jesus again says, I'm the light of the world. And again, so many of those I am the whatever statements um, tie in with the miracles of Jesus. I am the bread feeding of the 5,000. I am the light of the world, healing of the blind man. Uh, He allows him to see light. And it's right after this healing that Jesus talks about, I am the good shepherd. But I think it's really important to read John 10 with John 9 about, you know, the the people who are coming in to steal the sheep. It's kind of like the blind man's the sheep. The people coming in to steal are the Pharisees and other religious leaders coming after this guy. The hired hand runs away. That's kind of like his parents abandoning him. And, of course, Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. And even though the blind man doesn't understand everything, um, he knows enough about Jesus. Kind of like Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Uh, You have the words of eternal life. Uh, This blind man teaches the people around him a lot, even though he was not the quote-unquote educated one. Uh, So I just think John 9 and 10 are a really fascinating way that John wraps up this whole section at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Yeah, Uh, I'll tell you what, John chapter 11 is, again, so unique to John. Um, Well, and even before that, uh, chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, is another unique little section where Jesus uh, goes to Jerusalem for a different kind of feast. Uh, It's the Feast of Dedication. We talked about that in our Between the Testaments class, Mm -hmm. or uh, podcast, rather, because that is what we know as Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a feast that popped up in between the Old Testament and New Testament, Mm -hmm. and Jesus was celebrating that um, with the Jews. And I think that's a really notable thing to see. And it looks like that Jesus made it a priority to do that, which is cool. Yes. 
And again, you see the growing tension mm. between Jesus and the Jews here. And there's some similar statements he makes about my sheep knowing my voice to the beginning part of John 10. But they, they are ready to stone him. Yeah. He says, I and the Father are one. They're like going to stone him. And uh, he escapes from them at that time. But you can tell, like, if he goes back to Jerusalem, then it's going to be over for Jesus. Mm. And so this is kind of a – things have reached a tipping point. And he knows if he goes back to that area, they're going to try to kill him, yeah. which sets up chapters 11 and 12. Yeah, and I mean, it also notes like John ten thirty nine. Uh, therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So Jesus is kind of like dodging in and out of them. But in chapter 11, uh, there's a man that we're introduced to named Lazarus of Bethany, and it's in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We've talked about Mary and Martha before in other uh, podcasts. And Lazarus... Lazarus had died. Um, he had passed away, and everyone is just so incredibly distraught by this. And Jesus uh, will make his way over there, and uh, this is in John 11 and verse 9, as he gets there to talk to the disciples, he says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Mm -hmm. There it is again. Yeah, so the disciples think that Jesus is just talking on one level, but Jesus is talking on a complete different level. And Jesus will eventually go on to raise Lazarus from the dead. Mm -hmm. And this is the seventh and final sign in the first half of the book. Of course, the greatest sign Jesus will do is his own resurrection at the end of the book. But this is a fascinating chapter, one about his love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sisters. And there's a really moving conversation that Jesus has, both with first with Martha and then with Mary, and how he talks with Martha and comforts her with some things about the coming resurrection. It's, this is where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, and then he just weeps with Mary, gives them each the things that they need. But Jesus knows that by going back to Bethany, going back to the area of Jerusalem, he's giving up his own life. And that's what indeed happens at the end of John um, uh, 11. They're ready to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus again. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you can just see the level of unbelief in these people. They're like, let's kill the resurrected guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. Um, but they are, are terrified of the, the power of Jesus and the, the following that he's getting. And so it's at this third Passover that now Jesus enters for a final time. Uh, the triumphal entry is in John 12. And it's here that his hour comes. Mm -hmm. There are some Gentiles, some Greeks, who seek Jesus. And in John 12, when he hears about this, um, in verse um, 23, John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so he, he's like, all right, it's time, time to make the final sacrifice. And... Um, He's going to be lifted up, which is another interesting theme a few times in John. He talks about him being lifted up. 
um, from the earth and drawing all men unto him. And John 12 ends on kind of a sad note. John mm-hmm. closes this first big chunk of the book by saying the people really didn't believe. Yeah. Um, and he quotes from some Old Testament passages and says, this is just like Isaiah said, um, that a lot of them did not believe. But for those who will believe, um, he'll raise them up at the last day. Yeah. And so that's the first big chunk. Those seven signs are in these first section of John, chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through uh, chapter 12. So in chapter 13, it begins this new section where Jesus is going to have a final discussion and conversation with his 12 disciples. And five chapters. I had missed that for the longest time, just because it is so many chapters. I think it's really easy to just drop into a chapter and forget the context. But this is the last speech and conversation that Jesus is going to have with these 12 guys that he is going to send into the world to preach the gospel. And that story starts off... uh, by telling us it happened before the Feast of the Passover. And I I just want to read this because it really points out the humanity of Jesus and really the love that Jesus had for these disciples. This is in John 13, 1. Now before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And Jesus will proceed to wash the feet of the disciples, one of which that John had just stated, Jesus knows is going to betray him. Jesus stoops so low to humbly wash their feet. And one of them in particular isn't happy about that. Uh, Peter will speak up and say, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Peter will vehemently say, you shall never wash my feet. This is not something you should do. And Jesus will say, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have a part of me. And Peter will say, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but wash my hands and my head. He realizes uh, that we need Jesus. We need him to wash us. And I think this is really speaking on a much larger scale of what Jesus' final hour is about. It's washing our feet. A mess that we've caused, Jesus is stooping so low to humble himself, to give himself to serve us when we didn't deserve it. And Jesus will use this as an example to the disciples that they need to be willing to wash each other's feet and be willing to wash other people's feet, not just their own. They need to follow the example of their Lord and their teacher, as it says in verse 14. Um, And he calls himself the example there in verse 15 as well. And so that's really telling of what the rest of the gospel is going to be about is Jesus humbling himself and giving himself so willingly to the cross. But he has a whole lot more things to say before he gets to that point. Yeah, and so the rest of this conversation, uh, Judas actually is going to leave shortly after the washing of the disciples' feet. Um, Jesus does say, hey, one of you is going to betray me, which is a bombshell of a conversation to have with your 12 closest friends. Um, And Judas goes out. They don't know for what reason he leaves. Jesus knows what's going on. But really the rest of the conversation after Judas leaves 
in um, John 13, verse 30, um, the rest of the conversation is with the 11 who are going to continue to serve him. And he starts out talking about, I'm giving you a new commandment. You are to love one another just as I have loved you. And Peter kind of derails things like, hey, wait, where did you say you were going? <laughs> it's really interesting to see the flow of the conversation here. It's hard to outline uh, these five chapters, but you see Jesus talking and the disciples misunderstanding still some and wanting some clarification. But Jesus says, listen, you know the way to where I'm going because I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6 and Jesus is really getting his disciples ready in this final conversation for his departure. And so he's going to have a lot of things to say about the coming of the Holy Spirit um, and how he's going to send them help after he leaves. Because, I mean, this is a scary, scary thing for them to be without their teacher that they've had for these three years that he's been helping them and teaching them. And they've always had him there to lean on. And then he's going to be gone. And he's like, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. The Holy Spirit's going to help you. Um, it's also in this final conversation that Jesus talks about the analogy of being the vine and they're the branches. They can't do anything apart from him. And how it's his love for them that's going to empower their love for other people. Mm -hmm. um, and he gives them a very clear expectation in the end of chapter 15, the beginning of 16, about the world. That the world's going to hate you. People are going to kill you and think that they're offering service to God. Um, but I'm going to be with you. And this really gets into chapter 16 where he says, like, you're going to be sorrowful, but then you're just going to turn to joy. And at the end of his speech, he talks about um, verse 32, John 16, 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when ye will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. One thing I want to note about this, Jesus prepared his disciples. No one can say he didn't tell them what was coming, and no one can say he didn't give them the tools that they needed. That is so important for us to realize. This is a high calling Jesus has called us to, but he was upfront about that. He told us that he's giving us his word and his spirit to help us with that. That is so comforting to me that it was such a hard task he is willing to give us what we need. And the disciples, I'm sure, as confused as they are, I really try to think about in this long dialogue, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? Um, probably a little scared, probably anxious, confused, probably a little bit of everything. But Jesus is still giving them what they need, even though they don't realize it. Um, and the Word does that for us as well. There, there will be times we'll read or come across something, and we won't realize its effectiveness until the moment. <laughs> and I think the disciples are, are going to feel that later on as well. But the section ends, this final conversation, with a prayer. Um, and how appropriate is that? Where Jesus is going to tell the Father, uh, this is in John 17, um, in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Um, Jesus' kind of final prayer here, here is that God's will be done and that he be glorified through what Jesus is about to do. That, 
that also should be our want as well. That's that's a prayer we need to pray. And, and a huge theme in the rest of the prayer is the unity of his people, that they might be one, even as he and the Father are one. And it's a powerful, powerful thing to talk about his love, the, the unity that he had with the Father, and the way that he submitted to the Father, worked with the Father, um, is all manifested in what he wants his church to look like. The unity of God's people um, is exactly one of the things that he said, all people will know um, that you're my disciples um, because of this unity that you are to have with each other. And I also love John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's what they're going to need to hang on to. So a lot of cool things about glory, unity, and truth are the things Jesus is praying about here in John 17. So that brings us to the, the final uh, sequence of events in the gospel, which all four gospels record the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And John's gospel has an interesting twist on it in that when G- they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, apparently this final conversation with his disciples started on that Passover night. He doesn't record the, um, the beginning of the Lord's Supper, but they've moved to the Garden of Gethsemane by the end of this conversation with Jesus is praying. And they come to arrest him. And I think it's really cool that when uh, he asks them, who, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. In John 18, 5, um, he says, I am. Uh, with, I am he is the most English translations, but it's literally I am. And in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Um, what I think is an indication of his power and that they are not taking him by force without him giving himself up. Um, He is, I am. He's God Almighty, and they've come to arrest him, and he's giving himself up into their hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And so begins the trials, if we can call them trials, of Jesus uh, between the high priests, um, the the Jewish council, uh, Pilate. He has very interesting conversations with Pilate in the Gospel of John that we don't see elsewhere about his kingdom being not of this world. Yeah. And I also think it's just important to note, um, as we talk about all the different crucifixion accounts, remember that the Jews, they, they've kind of lost this right to just kill whoever they want to based off of their law because they're under Roman rule. And so the reason why you kind of see the going back and forth, back and forth between courts is because he's getting tried by the Jewish people, and then he's also going to be tried by the Jewish people. And so that is kind of what's going on there in chapter 18. But the end of it is really Jesus being handed over to be crucified. And Jesus is handed over to be scourged in chapter 19. The soldiers are mocking him with the crown of thorns, slapping him in the face. And uh, Jesus is eventually sent out um, to this place, um, Calvary, or to the place called the Skull, to be crucified. And they have the two other men with him on either side, uh, John 19 and verse 18. And Pilate writes this inscription up on the on the cross there, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. But of course, the people, they weren't happy about Pilate writing that, um, which is a uh, ironic statement that Pilate put up there because it is, it is true. That's exactly who Jesus is. John's account also includes that as Jesus is up on the cross, that Jesus sees his mother. And he also sees the disciple whom he loved. We believe that to be John, the apostle, that's writing this. 
And he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. They give him the sour wine. And after he receives it, he says, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so John, Stephen talked about it last week in Mark's gospel, shows a lot of restraint um, in just giving the raw details here of the crucifixion account. Um, So real for us to read this every time. Yes. And so Jesus dies. And John specifically says that he was witness to this. When they pierce his side with the spear in verse 35, John 1935, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. The greatest sign is still yet to come. Jesus has been sacrificed. The Lamb of God has now been put on the altar and has been killed. But it's after three days, after the burial of Jesus, which is when Nicodemus has his moment of showing his faith in Jesus and making that public, It's then in John 20 that they come to the tomb. And Mary is the first one to encounter the risen Lord. She doesn't realize it's Jesus. This is another one of those amazing personal encounters where she thinks he's the gardener. But then in John 20, verse 18, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And so he's revealed to first to this woman, to Mary. And... Then there are two other, I guess three other appearances that Jesus has at the end of the Gospel of John. Uh, A week later, he appears to the 11 disciples. Of course, Judas at this point has ended his life, as Mm -hmm. recorded in Matthew. Um, But he appears to them, and they think it's a ghost. It's kind of scary. Excuse me, um, that's in another account. But um, he shows them his hands and his side. But Thomas is not there. Yeah. And then the second appearance, a week later, uh, Thomas is again with them, and he says in um, John 20, verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Mm -hmm. And this is where he inserts his final statement about why he wrote this book, that these signs are written so that you may believe, because of course we don't have the benefit of seeing Jesus. We do benefit from Thomas's doubt though, and that he was convinced, even though he didn't initially believe, that when he saw Jesus, he was converted. Uh, He he truly believed. In John chapter 21, um, it almost, as you read John 21, you're like, is it just, are they all going back to normal? Because Peter gets up in verse 3 and says, I'm going fishing. And they said, we're going with you. And so they go out and they don't catch anything. But when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. He, they come back. Jesus says, children, you have no fish. and or, Do you have any fish? And they say, no. And he tells them to cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat. And they will find a, cast, a catch. And so they do so. And they pull in this great number of fish. And... It says in verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on uh, his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And he 
runs all the way to Jesus. And they get out to land, and they're at this charcoal fire where Jesus cooks breakfast for them. And they dine with Jesus. And that charcoal fire is really interesting, isn't it, Stephen? The last time a charcoal fire came up in John's gospel for Peter was when he was standing around one denying Jesus. Mm -hmm. And John, in a subtle way, records this reunion of Peter and Jesus, and where Peter is with the Lord and he's never turning his back on him again. Mm-hmm. And Jesus will have this final conversation with Simon Peter where he will tell him to tend his sheep. And he asks Peter, do you love me? And if you do, you will tend and shepherd my sheep. And that's what he's calling on Peter uh, to do. And so it's really cool to see this reunion of Jesus and Peter. Um, and it's contrasted with what Judas did in his betrayal of Jesus and hanging and killing himself. But Peter gets back up and he goes back to the Lord. And that's exactly what we need to do. When we betray the Lord and sell him out for some kind of sin or some kind of thing, do we have what it takes to stand back up, to face Jesus, to ask for forgiveness and do better? Um, And to love him in the way that he's called on Peter to love him. Yeah, and so there's this final conversation between Peter and John, which he's kind of wondering, hey, Jesus, basically Peter's been just told that he's going to die in a terrible way. He said, like, what about this man? I love what Jesus says about that. What's that to you? You follow me. That's right. Um, that the work of disciples is not to know what's going to happen to you, but it's simply to follow Jesus. And so the author of this book, who, who is anonymous, it doesn't say who it is, he identifies himself as this is the disciple, Verse John 21, 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You know, of course, we've done a short treatment of John on this podcast, but it's amazing to think about. Of all the things that Jesus did, we have just a fraction of them recorded, but the ones that we do have are more than enough for us to come to know who Jesus is, to believe in him, to give our lives to him, and to serve his people. Um, And so John is such a cool gospel, different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but so powerful to help us believe and to serve. Mm -hmm. Amen. Lord willing, next week we're going to get into the gospel of Luke. So we are out of order, but we're going to get back into it. And uh, Luke is writing writing from a completely different perspective. As he points out, he's looking and interviewing eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so it's going to be cool to kind of see his investigation into the ministry of Jesus Christ. Lord willing, we'll get into that next week. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review that'll help us reach more people. Um, If you'd like to study with us, 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. We can study a book of the Bible or questions you might have. Or for more information on group studies and other things, look at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.